going to continue this morning in my series on authentic faith. As in the first century, a generation of believers hit the then-known world with the power of their authentic faith. It was real. They actually believed that Jesus was alive. They knew that Jesus was alive, and they knew that Jesus had revolutionized their lives, and, and we read in the Scriptures that we have the same faith as those, those in that early first century apostolic generation, and, and in the 21st century, God is raising up a new apostolic generation that are wanting to discover authentic faith and being real in their relationship with Jesus. We've been getting busy with this topic, and the former topics and messages are available for you, both online and also in, in the foyer. Now, my topic today in this series is growing in faith. We have received this very precious, powerful, authentic faith. What do we do with it? How do we grow in this faith? So I'm turning you to 2 Peter chapter 1. And uh, verses 3 to 8, we're going to read together. 2 Peter 1, verses 3 to 8. It says that God's divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who has called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you'll be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here, Peter says, You've got this faith. It's precious. It's the gift of God. It's the same kind of faith that dwelt in the early apostles, including me. He says, you have the same kind of faith that I have. Don't think of me as some great apostle that is on a higher level, a higher plane than you. No, no, no. We all share in the same faith. And this faith has given us access to to great promises that God has given to us. And through these promises, something has happened to you. You have received a new nature. You are a partaker of the divine nature. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17, you probably all know this, is one of the most powerful passages of the New Testament, and it's saying exactly the same thing. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You are a new creation. 
This is not something you have to strive to get. When you receive Christ, he came and he gave you a new nature. And this nature has been made and created and recreated to be like God. God lives within you. You have a godly nature. You have a righteous nature. You have a born-again nature that loves God. And when you discover that nature, you discover the most powerful, the most precious, and the most real description of you. Your very identity comes from who you are in Christ and who Christ is in you. Therefore, now there's the link. Because this is true, Peter says, be concerned to grow in your faith. It's almost as as if he's saying, when you've discovered this, this faith that's alive in you, this living faith, that faith will begin to call you to call you to do certain things. We're going to hear the call of, the, of faith in our lives today. And uh, it's very important to know how this operates through the principles of grace. A lot of people say, well, you know, I understand this. I'm saved by grace. I can't, I can't get saved by my own efforts. And I know Jesus has saved me. And that comes by grace through faith and faith alone. It's not that you have to do something and qualify for salvation. Jesus has qualified you because you're saved not by your works, but by what he has done. And so it's, it's totally without effort at all. You simply receive pure grace through simple faith. And we stress that. That's the foundation. Because out of that gift of grace... You have a holy inspiration. Something is motivating you within. You don't live a holy life in order to be accepted by God. You live a holy life because you are accepted by God. This grace inspires you. It it inspires within you a holy gratitude, not an unholy obligation. And, uh, you know, in our social conventions, you'll know what I'm talking about. Somebody says, oh, I'd like to have you around to have some dinner. And you say, oh, that's fantastic. And so they invite you to their house. They look after you. They give you hospitality. And when you leave, you think to yourself, oh, my, I've got to invite them now to my house. <laughs> because that's the social convention. Because they've, they've been kind to you. And now you've got to kind of repay them. And that's not like God. God doesn't say, come and eat in my house. And now you owe me something. And of course, we owe God everything anyway, but salvation isn't this kind of guilt trip. God's done this, I better try and do something now for him to repay him. You can never repay God for what he's done. If you could, it would no longer be grace. It's totally free. Now, God obviously is wanting to draw us closer to him, and, but he makes the invitation open but he doesn't put external pressure on us, doesn't take us on a guilt trip. After all I've done for you, and now you treat me like this, shame on you. That's not God. That might be your best friend. (laughs) It might be other people, but it's not God. We are so free, so liberated in Christ, that it becomes now our choice, our privilege, And of course, out of gratitude, we want to do this. We want to live for God because we've discovered somebody who loves us finally as we are, 
but also loves us too much and invites to, to keep us as we are and invites us to change. So there's this wonderful inspiration of grace, but also grace is more than just some kind of inspiration. Grace is an enabling, transforming power within you. The grace of God in you. We can truly say, I am what I am by the grace of God. But we can also go on to say, I can do what I do by the grace of God. Not me, but it's God's grace at work in me. I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. You've got it made, friends. You have a new power, a new ability, a new identity, and grace teaches us and trains us and shapes us. God's great vision for your life is that you should become like Jesus, and he's put that stuff in you, and you have a new desire and a new passion, a passion to be like Jesus. Jesus. And that passion, if you learn how to nurture it, if you follow these instructions that Peter is giving in the scripture, if we know how to nurture that, that passion can become the ruling passion of your life. That passion can be real, such a real passion that every other passion is, pales into insignificance. Many years ago, many, many years ago, a pastor, theologian by the name of Thomas Chambers, he wrote a book entitled The Expulsive Power of a Superior Passion. In other words, the way that we live for God is to be so passionate about him that that passion becomes stronger than any other passion. And it's a new passion that takes over from the old one. I don't know if many of you are where you are in this. Maybe you're in this yourself in the teenage years. Maybe you remember just a few years ago what you were like. Maybe you are the parent of teenage children. But um, I wonder if you've seen or experienced anything like this. So, okay, here I, here I am, a father, and, and um, my daughter, teenage daughter, comes back and says, Dad, I want you to meet Tom, Tom, Tom. Who's Tom? Oh, hello, Tom. And you look at him, and she says, oh, he's amazing. And you look at him, and you say, well, I don't see it. He's some scrawny teenager, and, and, and she's just so crazy. And it's Tom this, Tom that, Tom, 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 Tom there. He's amazing, Tom, Tom, Tom. Anyway, a couple of weeks pass by, and, and you see her, and, and, and uh, she says, um, Hi, I'd like you to meet someone. Oh, yes, Tom, Tom, no, not Tom. Tom, not Tom, it's George. Tom, what's, what happened to Tom? Oh, Tom, forget Tom. This is George. George is amazing. George is fantastic. That's, that's the expulsive power of a new passion. And in the same way, although not like teenagers, but the same principle applies. We kind of get, fall so much in love with Jesus that we forget all those other things that we used to be addicted to, we used to love, we used to pursue with passion, our worldly passions. We've escaped that through a new passion. God has given you a new passion which has the potential to become the dominant ruling passion of your life. That's why Peter says, therefore, because of all these things that have happened to you, there's something now that follows on from that, not just logically, but dynamically. Because it's logical that if we are new people in Christ, that we should live so. Yeah, that's logical, but sometimes when you're in the grip of difficulty and bondage and pain and suffering and, and all that kind of stuff... <laughs> But it's not just a logical deduction. I don't know 
for, for what you're like, but when, when I'm in the grip of some temptation which is trying to reawaken old passions in me to draw me away from God, somebody comes and gives me a slide rule or some tables, and it's not logical. I'm not interested in logic. The passion kind of wants to drive away the logic. But, but when it, you understand that there is a spirit dynamic operating in you, all you have to do is to connect with the new passion. And that will drive you forward. And so Peter says, therefore, giving all diligence. Now, it's so easy for me to skip over that, giving all diligence, and get down to the meat. But there's so much here, so much richness, so much marrow in this bone. And I've been boiling that bone and drawing from it recently. Giving all diligence. So there's two words here I want us to look at briefly. The word giving, in its context, and diligence. Wonderful words. The first of all, the word giving is more than just something that is offered to you. It has a very special meaning. It is giving something in a certain way that corresponds to something else. That's what the word means. So what we have here is faith, and faith is calling you to take a certain action to complete the faith experience. Bring something alongside your faith to work in tandem with your faith. Something that will cooperate with your faith, work together with your faith in order to produce fruit. And what is this? It's action. Faith always calls for action. And think about that for a while. It's very easy to say, yes, I'm a believer. I love God. The world says, you do, do you? Show me. We believe that Jesus is Lord, and he says, yes, you, you say Lord, Lord, but do you do what I ask? Faith always calls for action. Faith on its own is like a solo rider on a tandem bike. Have you ever seen some poor soul struggling on a tandem bike, and there's an empty seat there, and there's some empty pedals, uh, and they stop and say, listen, listen, this bicycle is made for two. Get on the back and don't make me do all the work. Come on, you get behind and do something. That's our response. We jump on to the tandem bike of faith and apply our spirit-enabled effort and cooperation so that our faith and actions which belong together, correspond to one another, work together so that fruit comes in our lives. If you don't get on that bike, there will be no fruit. Get on that bike and your faith and actions are working together, you put your faith into practice, then there's fruit. Second word, diligence. In fact, it's all diligence. So we talk about diligence, it kind of has a kind of heavy tone to it, you know. Be diligent. Oh, yes, okay, that means be disciplined, be meticulous to detail. I believe that we should cultivate the right kind of spiritual disciplines, don't you? But in this, there's also something joyful because the word diligence means pay careful attention to this because you are eager to do it. You are eager to learn. You are eager to do it. You're passionate about this. And it carries also the idea of speed. Be quick about this. So if you, if you just bought a beautiful present for somebody and you're going to send it overseas and I'm going to make sure it gets there, it's proper, properly addressed, you've got the right courier, and you say, I want them to get this quickly, so you say, fast delivery service, please. And sometimes you might pay extra for a next day delivery 
because this, this, is, this is rapid delivery. In other words, you're eager for that other person to get it. And uh, sometimes if you go shopping, let's be a little bit stereotypical here. So uh, we are going shopping. Anyway, there's a big difference between shopping and buying. Women shop and men buy. That's another, that's another whole story. But, but a, a woman comes home from the shop. She's been shopping which means she's been into every shop, tried on every garment, and come back and bought the first thing that she saw. That's shopping. So when she comes back, she's got this new article of clothing, and she can't wait to wear it. She's eager to wear it. That's the eagerness we're talking about. And as for the men, we go to the tech shop, and we come back with our latest toy. And the only difference between men and boys is the price of their toys. And we come back with the latest tech thing, and we can't wait to rip it out of, of the box and to start to use it, because we've got something amazing. It's new, it's fresh, and we're eager to wear it. We're eager to use it. That's exactly the meaning of this word. All diligence means I'm so excited that I'm alive in Christ. I can't wait to wear him. I can't wait to put him in practice in my life. All diligence, top priority. Don't delay, do it today. Grace motivates us like those things. Giving all diligence. Then it comes to the main part, what he's saying. Now then, because of all this, because you've got a new life, because you love God, a new passion that's in you and that defines you, your spiritual orientation defines you, you've escaped the corruption in the world for the old desires because there's, there's life and there's new desires in you, you can't wait to live it out. Therefore, he says, now how you do it is you add to your faith. Very, very important. You might just miss it if you don't think about it. Add to your faith. What are you saying up until this point? It's faith alone. Up to this point, it's faith alone. You are saved by grace through faith alone. In other words, getting to heaven has nothing to do with your works at all. It is faith alone alone. Nothing to do what, with whatever you have done in the past, good or bad. Nothing to do with anything you are doing now, good or bad. Nothing to do with anything that you will do in the future, good or bad. It all depends 100% on what Jesus has fully and completely done for you on the cross. And you receive that pure grace by simple faith. Faith alone. And then, now Peter says, now, having grasped that, now is the time to add to your faith. Put your faith into practice. Put action into your faith. Express your faith by actions. And in this way, you will bear fruit for God. Notice he's telling us now there is something to do. If you sit down and say, well, there it is. Jesus is in me and I, I'm saved and now it's, it's over to him. If he wants me to do something, he's going to have to move me in that direction. 
and we're almost like puppets on a string. And if holiness isn't appearing, well, then it's like, God, what's you? you're lazy today. You haven't made me do anything. No, 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 no. This is cooperation. This is saying, God, I now have something to do, not in my own strength but enabled by the Holy Spirit, living the Christian life is about faith activity. Not just doing, but doing in faith. As your actions are the outworking, the overflowing of your faith. And that's the only way you bear fruit. You don't just sit still and suddenly fruit appears because you're gazing at Jesus. When you gaze at Jesus, you say, wow, isn't he wonderful? He says, yes, that's right, you're in me, hallelujah. And then he says, I'm in you, that's wonderful. And if I'm in you, what what are you going to do with that? Oh, it means I can do something. Yes, you can. Now you can live a holy life. Now there is something for you to do, and you can do it with success. Because the Bible says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You can't live a holy life without Christ in you. But once Christ is in you, you have to do it. You have to do it. You have to do something. Put off the old. Put on the new. Make sure that you are dealing with sin in your life. And that's why I'm not ashamed or scared or timid to tell you, you've got to lift the lid off your life very frequently and say, what in heaven's name is going on inside me? And the first thing that you will discover is there's some flesh stuff working. You need to be aware of the flesh dynamics which are always working to pull you away from Christ. But you cut through that with your deeper investigation and your prayer and seeking God and you discover that when you cut through that hideous flesh layer, you come to the gold on the inside of you, pure gold of Christ in you, and then in the power and energy of that new life, now you're talking, now you can begin to deal with the sin stuff that's going on in your life. Add to your faith by putting your faith into action, producing fruit. That's what faith calls you to do. That's what grace calls you to do. That's what Jesus calls you to do. Now, what does he ask us to add? Um, There are seven things that he mentions here to add. And, um, you know, like when, when Bible writers draw up lists, it's not always that those lists are exhaustive. Very often they are suggestive. There are many, many other things he could, he maybe he could have said, but I think Peter has carefully chosen these seven things because they're the kind of foundation upon which a godly life can be experienced or built. And I want to suggest to you, can't prove it, but I want to suggest to you that in a way, when, when he, he's talking about building one thing upon another because we are advancing in this walk of faith. So he starts with some basic things, then he ed- ends up, as you'll see, with love, which is the crowning quality of all. So there's a kind of upward progression here. But he begins with virtue. Add to your faith virtue. Unfortunately, we're not so sure what that word means <laughs> today. It's kind of an old-fashioned word. And so investigating how it's used... In the Bible, there's a couple of clear examples. One I'm going to share with you, which will really explain to you what this word means, help us grasp it. Do you remember the woman who had an issue of blood? Remember that lady? And uh, because she was bleeding, 
she was ceremonially unclean, and that meant she, she couldn't really mix with people, but so she kind of hid, and, and, and she said, I, I want to get to Jesus. I, I can't declare myself, make everybody, let everybody know I'm here because they won't have me in the crowd because I am impure ceremonially according to ritualistic Levitical law, but she had a passion for Jesus. I'm going I'm to reach him. I'm going to reach him. Remember, she kept saying to herself, if only I'd touch him. I just touched the hem of his garment, not obviously, hey, here I am, but, you know, just surreptitiously, secretly, without anybody noticing, if I could just grab the hem of his garment, I will be healed. And she did that. That's exactly what happened. She grabbed his garment. Remember the story? And something happened. Jesus said, who touched me? Sorry, I woke somebody up here. Okay. (laughs) Who touched me? And they said, what do you mean? Everybody's touching. Everybody's pressing. No, no, somebody's touched me. Somebody's touched me. This is what faith does. Faith can touch Jesus, not just bump into him, not just hang around with him, but faith can touch him. And when you touch him, you connect to something in him. That's his virtue. Remember, he said, I felt virtue leave me. And really what that was also saying was this woman felt virtue enter her. That's what we're talking about. It's the same word, virtue. It's talking about a power. A power of goodness. A power that can overcome anything that's negative in your life. It is a spiritual energy. A spiritual energy and moral energy, uh, uh, a spiritual goodness. And, uh, and Peter says, add that. Lay hold of Jesus in that respect so that the virtue of Christ's power, his moral, his spiritual energy, his healing power, his goodness, that is released into your life. And, and, and then you say, I recognize it, I nurture it, and I consciously draw on it. It's a bit like this. You know you have a, a, a motor car, an engine, okay? So I'm not going to get too mechanical because I drive an automatic and long time since I've had to manually change gears and put me in a manual car and I'm a, I'm a danger to life and limb. But in this automatic car, but still same principle. Let's stick with the manual, oh, manual car. So you've got the engine switched on and it's revving. It's great, the engine is running. I want to tell you, there's an engine running in your life. That's your new nature. It's always there. Whether you're moving, not moving, engaged, disengaged, it makes no difference. That energy is there. But what Peter is saying, really, put it in a modern illustration, he's saying, now what you have to do is take the lever, the gear lever, and engage first gear. And when you do that, you start moving. Add to your faith virtue, the energy that if you engage with it, will take you forward. And before long, you've got to go to second gear. And from second gear, go to third gear. From third gear, fourth gear, fifth gear, overdrive, any other gear. And some people drive cars uh, and there ain't no gears, enough for what, the way they use them. But you will, and there are those gear shift changes in our, in our moments. There are those gear, even in automatic, you can hear the gear changing. And this is about progressing in the spiritual life. But every single time, it's a conscious act of your own will and decision. I'm going to engage 
with the power of God in me. I'm going to add to my faith virtue. And then it goes on to say, it's not just about power. You can see how these link and kind of build up, at least in, in the way I'm, I'm thinking. Might not have been in Peter's mind, but it kind of comes across that way to me. So it's not enough just to have power. You've got to have knowledge. Okay? Not just virtue, but knowledge. So he says, not, you've got the power you're engaging, but now you've got to know some stuff. You've got to know when to turn left. You've got to know when to go ahead and, and all this kind of stuff. So he says, add to that virtue, that released power, that energizing power that is propelling you forward. Now you need some knowledge. And the knowledge that he's talking about here is not just intellectual, abstract knowledge. Actually, it's talking about practical knowledge. Knowing God not just knowing about him, but knowing him, knowing his ways, discovering his ways, knowing the scripture. Now, I don't know, I guess some of this is biased by my own gifts and calling. I love studying the scripture. And uh, not, as it were, just the, the words of the Bible in their context, but also you know, the history and, and all the stuff, and then see how that relates to current philosophy so we can tear down strongholds. And I love it. And, and, and I can be so engaged in that that Amanda can bring me three cups of tea and I drink neither of them. They just go cold because I'm so, so taken up in this kind of stuff. And that's good. It is good to study the Bible in that way, to know that there are 66 books, to know the Old Testament, the New Testament, to know how it's divided in the divisions and so on, Pentateuch, historical books, prophetic books, uh, poetical books, prophetic books, New Testament, you've got the Gospels, you've got the Acts, you've got the Epistles, you've got Revelation, and then kind of what do scholars say, well, they, they think this was dated then, written to this group of people for that kind of reason, am I boring you yet? Yeah. Well, you know, if you stick to there, it's just, it's just academic and it is boring. But if you then say, okay, now I've got some of that stuff, what difference does this make in my life? I'm reading the Bible and rereading the Bible with a, from a whole new perspective. I'm opening my Bible now and saying, okay, what's your story, God? Tell the story, because the whole Bible hangs to a story, amazing story, and we're part of that story. And so it becomes exciting. It becomes about how you live your daily life, and you see principles in the Scripture, and the, the knowledge here is not just knowing what you ought to do, but having the practical know-how to put that into practice. It becomes a lifestyle. That's the knowledge. So you've got the energy and the power, and, and, and now it's the knowledge to, to know what to do with it all and where to go with it. But then he builds higher, and he says, add to your knowledge self-control. I suppose we could still stick to driving if we want to extend the analogy further. There are two things which act as pedals at your feet. And it seems that some drivers know only one pedal or the other one. You have the accelerator, blah, and people on the brake, stop, stop, break, 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 break. There is a power that thrusts you forward, but there is also a brake that you have to apply to bring this under control. What kind of control I'm talking about? Self-control. Paul says you need to learn to master your sinful desires. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 to 13. He says, all things are lawful for me. A little bit of study here might suggest that this was the libertarian view that the Corinthians were saying. Oh, it doesn't matter. It's all under grace. It's okay. Go to the pub. It's lawful for me. Get drunk. Lawful for me. Stuff my face. Gets lawful for me. Doesn't really matter. Do what I want. All things are lawful. Some people say that that's what they were saying. 
I'm not sure, but we'll go with that for the moment. You might be able to say, all things are lawful, but Paul says, maybe so. Maybe in a sense that some of the stuff that you're doing isn't, isn't sinful of itself. But is it controlling you? That's the issue. So let's take alcohol. I'm not so sure I'm treading on any, any toes here today. Let's take alcohol as an example, or, or drinking wine with, with meal. If God has told you that abstinence is what he wants for you, go for it, stick to it, keep it, and, but don't think you're more spiritual than somebody else who's hearing the Holy Spirit in another way, okay? But let's suppose that. So, okay, we all agree that abuse of alcohol is certainly wrong in Scripture. What's the difference between use and abuse? Well, it's a lot, actually. Go on the National Health Service website. It'll tell you what are safe intakes of alcohol. And the medical profession is getting more and more strict about that medically. But one thing is absolutely clear is when something begins to control you, you're in trouble. And that's not just about addictive substances such as alcohol, but addictive relationships or maybe addictive hobbies. If you're so passionate about that TV series that comes on Netflix for you, and it's got 58 episodes, and you've watched 33 before you came to the service today, (laughs) probably you're too spaced out to know what I'm talking about today, but somehow in this service there's a message for you. Isn't interesting? Too much of anything can be... Harmful. I'm not trying to be a puritanical moralist here, but you, we know when something starts to take over our life and it's not, it's not right. It might be not wrong in itself, but it becomes ungodly when it masters you. Paul says, yes, all things are lawful maybe, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of anything. Interesting. And by that, by that principle, we will be at times prepared, because it's necessary at times, to cut out of our lives things which are perfectly legitimate, but they tend to be mastering us. That's a higher level of walking in the Holy Spirit, isn't it? And anyway, there's always that battle between the flesh and the spirit, things that we feel led to do, work out what is leading you. Is it the flesh dynamics taking you in a direction away from the spirit or is it the spirit who is the stronger one, infinitely stronger, who is pulling the tug of war rope in the other direction and you say, I'm going to cooperate with the spirit. I'm coming on his team. Now suppose you saw a guy, or it could be a lady, just, just, just to make sure that we are complying with all equality here. It could be a lady, you know, arms like legs, legs like tree trunks. You know, there's some very strong women around as well, and they compete in sports. But let's stick with the, with the, with the male image, for example. You've got a man, and he, he's Jeff Capes plus Jeff Capes plus Jeff Capes. And on the other side, you've got a few Katie staff. Let's, let's not say which ones, but the ones who are not necessarily, you know, that vigorously in training, that haven't kind of just left the army or, or something like that on the other side uh, and uh, you know me me for example anyway and a few others and you've got all this lineup of Jeff Capes types characters here and and this represents the Holy Spirit sorry that I now put myself on the side of the flesh being your senior minister and all of that but you can forgive me it's only an illustration no truth at all in this and don't try it at home all right so pull pull now then the spirit is on the, is the winning side he's gonna win he's gonna win he's the stronger power who do you want to side with 
Do you want to side with the flesh and, uh, and end in disaster? Sow to the flesh and reap from the flesh corruption, disaster, defeat, and bondage, and everything else that goes with it? Or do you want to get on the side of the Holy Spirit, not just because he's winning, <laughs> because he is, but it's because you want the good things that God has for you. That is self-control. Now add to self-control, he builds up again. Self-control is not enough. You've got to also have perseverance. It's very good to start a good thing, but you're not going to bear fruit until you persevere, until the fruit comes. How, how long is that going to take? Don't know. Don't know. Give me an example of a plant, an apple tree or something like that. I could research it and let you know just when that fig tree is going to blossom and bear fruit, just when that apple tree is expected to bear. But in the spirit, we have no idea. All we know is that we must keep on going, keep on persevering, because he who hasn't finished with us yet will not finish with us until he's brought us to full maturity and completion in Christ. But we have to cooperate with him. We have to cooperate with him. Perseverance. You know, um, I'm sure you've experienced this in many, many ways. Maybe you're doing a course of study, and you look at it, and you read it, it gets complicated, and you get bored, you get so tired, and you think, oh, I feel like giving up. And you know, you don't, because you've got a goal. I've got to get through this exam. I've got to get this stuff done. If it happens to be you, literally about an exam and a student today, you had a little lovely word from the Lord, and that's free for you today. Because you keep persevering, you're going to get there. But in all walks of life, if you give up halfway, or even three-quarters away, or nine-tenths of the way, you don't get the prize. You don't get the fruit. And so here's a very simple, godly, and useful, proven method of growing in holiness. Don't give up. <laughs> Don't stop. Even when none of the feelings are there, none of the circumstances are, are helping you in any way, and everything's against you, and you feel like this is ridiculous. Don't give up when you're so discouraged. And, and every word from everybody's mouth, including your so-called brothers and sisters, seems to pile more and more discouragement on you, something on the inside of you. If you listen to it, it'll say, don't give up. You're going to get there. You're going to reap if you don't give up. Come on, persevere. Show up. Keep showing up. Keep showing up. Then he goes on, add to this perseverance, because you see, self-control requires perseverance, and it's not just you go through a phase in your life, you say, these next three months, I'm going to discipline myself, and after that, if by the summer comes, you've forgotten it. You keep on doing it. Self-control means you've got to keep on doing it, keep on doing it. And, and, and when that's the case, you've got to say, okay, what, what is this all about? What is it all about? How At this higher level, at this higher level, what is it all about? Is there some way that I can just, on a daily basis, just bring all this stuff together in a way that is simple and for me to understand, God, what is it all about? And this is what he says next. Add to perseverance, godliness. Godliness. Now, the word literally means living and being and being like God, okay? And I, I accept that here, but... I want to take a step back from that because if I said to you what you're doing is ungodly and you need to do something that's godly, you'll say, tell me something I don't know. I'm going to try and tell you something you may not know. And that godliness is an attitude before it's an action. 
It's a, it's a kind of skill that you can develop in which you recognize that God is with you all the time. That he's with you. He's everywhere. And then get some big blessing in your life and you say, wow, thank you, God, that comes from you. That's godliness. When things are tough, say, God, I don't want to know what you're doing, but I know one thing. You are in this. You haven't forsaken me. You are still with me. The knowledge that God is with you is godliness, especially when you practice the consciousness of that, like being conscious of the fact that God, my feelings don't seem to match up to this, and actually my struggles don't seem to match up to this, but do you know what? I'm going to accept this by faith. I'm going to cultivate a godly mindset. God, you're with me. And, I, and, and you're here. And when you start looking at life like that, you see him everywhere. You see him everywhere. You start to see him. Let's just take the natural world. I mean, he's everywhere. It's God who's in our creation, showing himself. And you see him, it sounds sentimental, but, but don't, don't think that this is just purple prose. But, but that, that rainbow is always as, as beautiful as it ever was. That God, that's, that's telling me something about God and the whole of the natural world. And that's why when we sit and wonder and look at the stuff, instead of being so bogged down, I live in London, the only garden I know is the dirt that's under my carpet. Look up and you see God. Look to the heavens, you see God. Everywhere you go, you see God. Look to one another, you see God. See God in your brother. Sometimes it takes a lot of faith and microscopic vision to do it. <laughs> but you look up, you will see God. Also in the non-Christians, you know what has helped me, liberated me in my ministry of sharing the gospel and testimony one-on-one -on -one in a social friendship context, which is even different from like public proclamation, is to, just to see how wonderful non-Christians are simply because they're made in the image of God. It's all broken and smashed and problems and all the rest of it, but you can still see something of God reflected in their lives. And when you see God, it's amazing. And so many times I've said this, I'm unable to stop myself. Said, oh, whoa, I just see so much of God in you. Said, what are you talking about? I don't even believe in God. Well, he believes in you, so that's irrelevant. Uh, you, look, do you realize that this gift, this talent you have, the, the way you put that, that ability, this passion that you have, which is, which is not a sinful one, but this passion that you have and the way that you see things and the way that you just did that, that's, that's God. You see God everywhere. In fact, if you look closely enough, you'll find God even in the atheists. You'll find God there. What are, they, what are they struggling against? Why are they so hot under the collar? Why do they have to be so fundamentalist, fundamentalist about trying to prove that God doesn't exist? Because they, they are struggling in their heart. They're struggling there. There's something going on which is God, which is God. And at times, you know, that God will manifest like that. Quick story, very quickly, because time is going. I'd like the musicians to be ready in a moment. And I was in, in Malaysia, and we were guarded by Secret Service agents at the time because we were not allowed to preach to to Muslims and this kind of stuff. It was just, just the way it was. It was a Christian convention and there was a guy standing out there looking at everything going on. The power of God is moving. Things are happening. Jesus is manifesting all over the place. Deaf ears are being opened and healings. And everything. He's more and more interested and I thought, Lord, you're speaking to him. And I'd spoken to him. No, I don't believe in God. God doesn't exist. God doesn't exist. The last meeting, the last meeting, Holy Spirit's flowing. I've got to get out of that place. I've got to find a quick, quick, quick exit out of there. And everybody's coming to be prayed for. And so I thought, okay, if I make my way to the door, maybe I, just, I can just pray for the last person and rush and get my train, my plane. Everything was working that way, and, I, and there he was standing right there like this, about two feet away from the wall, and I said, 
Hi, how are you? Do, do, do you believe in God? I still I don't believe in God. I put my hands on him and prayed for him. I'm speaking very quickly because time is going. Are you keeping up with me? Are you keeping up with me? And, and so I prayed for him. The power of God came on and it felt like a ladder against the wall, rid, rigid against the wall. And I was very naughty. Don't do this. Don't do this. Be more loving than I was. I said, what? Are you feeling something? Yes. I said, what are you feeling? I don't know. I said, that's God. That's God. That's God. Hallelujah. You'll be surprised. Thank you, gentlemen. You'll be surprised at the way God will manifest himself in surprising places. Godliness. It's like setting the satellite dish of your life in exactly the right degree to catch that sending signal from God's satellite uh, that you become fully conscious of him. And on top of that, godliness, brotherly kindness. In a way, we're still climbing higher because we're reaching the summit of love but nothing to bring us down to earth more than practical brotherly kindness, looking out for one another, putting up with one another. If you're in a situation, I would love to change my cell. I'd love to change my cell. Why? Because that person that comes to I can't stand them. That's why God puts you in the cell, and I'm pretty sure your leader will make you sit together. <laughs> putting up with one another, putting their needs above your own, loving the brethren, all of them, all of them, all of them, all of them. Help us, Jesus. And add to brotherly kindness, love. And when we, add, when we get there, we've reached the pinnacle. We've reached the summit. Like those climbers. I'm sure you've been following those climbers going up that very steep, the hardest climb in the world. There's nothing to cling on to except some ledges which are the size of two credit cards hanging on by their fingers. Climbing, 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 reach to get to the summit. Now how difficult the struggle is. We're kept by the rope of safety of Jesus, but we make it by his power to the top. And when we stand, we say love is the greatest of all. Put on love. It's the bond of perfection. It's the crown jewels. It's the, it's the golden thread upon which all the other jewels of Christian character are hung. Then verse 8. 2 Peter 1 verse 8. For if these things are yours and abound. Remember if. To, next week we'll talk about if not. This isn't automatic. It doesn't just happen. But if you persevere and keep growing in Christ, this is what will be for you. You will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord. You'll bear fruit for God and Jesus will be formed in your life. Amen and amen.